So then Johnny like cold calls me. I'm sitting at my little parks and recreation <laughs> job. It's one of those phones that, you know, it's like one of those hard plastic phones that you see from the 1950s, yeah. you know, with the light yes, on it. Yes, I was it. just going to say the <laughs> blinking light, like Johnny Depp on line one, Lori. And I, I knew it was him, his voice, you know, it wasn't anyone messing with me. So I'm just like, what? And so he's, we talked for a little bit and, and then he said, you know, whatever I can do. My name is Lori Davis, and I live in New Orleans. And we're talking about my epic journey working uh, behind the scenes of the West Memphis Three movement. Yes. Not so behind the scenes. Maybe it started that yeah, way, try, but... Tried, tried to. <laughs> tried to keep it I that know. way for a long time. Hi, I'm Jillian Pensavalli. I'm a true crime podcaster with pink and purple hair, and I have a lot of questions. Welcome to my new podcast. Let the women do the work. That title and this show grew out of something I'm always saying, all right, sometimes yelling, when covering true crime documentaries with my co-host Patrick Hines on another podcast you might know called True Crime Obsessed. Jillian Pensavale. Patrick Hines. Wow, that really is good. See what happens when you shut up (laughs) and let the women do the work? (laughs) And you might be asking, what do we mean by that? Well, It's simple. Over the years, I've watched a lot of documentaries, I've read a lot of books, and I've binged my fair share of podcasts on true crime. And somewhere, sometimes multiple places, in each cast of characters in a case, there's a woman whose story goes untold. And no, I'm not just talking about the victim, which unfortunately is a thing that happens all too often. I'm talking about the next door neighbor with insight only they can share or the detective undercover as the hot new girlfriend to a prime suspect. Maybe the wrongfully convicted herself or the spouse of an innocent person on death row. In all of these stories, there's a woman inside, outside, next to, or affected by it all. And I think it's time to dive into that further. So on each episode of this podcast, we'll reframe a true crime case around one of these people. And when I got to thinking about where to start, I thought, why not Lori? Thank you so much for doing this. Such an honor, Jillian. Back at you. Like, this is, I know you've told the story a thousand times, but I appreciate you. Not with you. I know. I, you know, I thought maybe that would be a different, it's like, it's it's like we're just at Alice's teacup or something. We're just hanging out. Yeah. Like old times. All right, cool. Let's just get started. I'm just going to dive in. All righty. Okay, cool. Lori Davis is a dear friend of mine. She's also a film producer, an activist, and the wife of Damien Eccles from the West Memphis Three. For those who need a reminder, don't worry, I got you. This was such a horrible crime. This is the creek where the bodies of the three little boys were discovered. To this day, the debate continues over whether they were actually murdered here or killed at another location and later brought here. No one debates the brutality. The boys found naked in the water, their hands and feet tied, their bodies beaten, cut, stabbed, one even castrated. The crime sent a panic through West Memphis. The West Memphis Three case came out of a triple homicide. Three Cub Scouts were murdered in the woods outside a small town called West Memphis, Arkansas. Their names were Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. And the crime was brutal. Several injuries were found on the bodies, including what looked like oddly patterned stab wounds. And if you're curious to learn more, there are multiple documentaries that go into further detail on the crime itself. But let's go back to where it started. 
It was the spring of 1993 in the last gasp of the satanic panic. Exorcisms of the devil appear just as sincere, far out. This is a pentacle. I have an old three-inch scar here on my wrist where my friends used to cut my arm open and bleed my blood into a cup. How long have you uh, looked this way and uh, what's the reason? Uh, I don't know, a few years now. I don't know. It's how I feel inside, you know? For the purposes of this study, we will focus on the number 666. No, I'm fed up with normal people not, like, accepting me. Most people don't realize that 80% of all toys on the market have occultic influence, and these are the most popular. Skeletal, the master of the... I reverse thread the machine, and I'm going to play that exact piece of tape backwards now. Okay, I live with Satan, exactly. Throughout the 80s and early 90s, a global fascination with the devil took hold of the media. Occults, pentagrams, goths, what, what, what? Yelled normies across America. The name of the game was this. Evil lives over there, where the devil worshippers are. So in a rush to find the killers of these three young boys, police followed this line of thinking. It simply had to be the work of a satanic cabal of goths in the woods, right? It just had to be. It couldn't be someone they actually knew. So who better to suspect than three outcast teenagers? Jesse Miss Kelly, Jason Baldwin, and Damien Eccles. With no DNA evidence, an undeniably coerced confession from Jesse, who had a mental disability making him particularly vulnerable to manipulation, as well as arguments from the state claiming that their interest in things like Stephen King and Metallica was cause for suspicion, they were convicted. Jesse and Jason got life in prison, and Damien was put on death row. Fast forward a couple years, and a documentary comes out. It's called Paradise Lost, and it was essentially the public's first intimate view into the case. It showed the world how truly vulnerable these guys were to being blamed for this crime and how incredibly obvious it is that the real murderer got away with it. And on a rainy New York night in February of 1996, my friend Lori saw it too. Hey, girl. Hey, girl. Guess what? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Yes, BetterHelp. So I know it's really easy to doom scroll. I get suckered into the doom scrolling. (laughs) And that just affects my mental health a lot, Uh you know? And sometimes like, oh, I get headaches. And I'm like, what is that? Is that just because I'm dehydrated? Is it stress? I don't know. You know what helps? Talking it out. That's the thing. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways, you guys. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. Who hasn't? You know what I mean? Follow me for more hot takes. I'm obsessed with therapy. I think we should all be in therapy. I say that with love. Even if you're doing great, talk about how great things are. Dig things up from your childhood. It's healthy. BetterHelp is customized (laughs) online therapy. It offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. That's a safe feeling. This is my favorite part, fam. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. Right. And if you're a listener of Let the Women Do the Work, which I believe you are if you're hearing this very you ad. You must be. Hey. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash do the work. That's the thing, fam. Do the work. We love you so much. It's work on yourself. It's good. It's yeah. all healthy. Please just do it. It might be hard. You're going to be tired. That's okay. <laughs> it's all right. And that's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash do the work. 
So it's the late 90s. Paradise Lost, directed by Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky, hits theaters. And here's Lori. I was living in New York at the time, and I always went to this film series at the Museum of Modern Art called um, New Directors, New Films. And I would go with a friend of mine, and we would, you know, divvy up buying tickets. He would buy tickets. Anyway, so he wanted to see this movie called Paradise Lost. When I looked at the synopsis in the catalog, I thought, first of all, I thought Damien was a girl. And I talked about Because of the hair? <laughs> I said, I do not want to see a movie about some girl who murdered a bunch of kids. I mean, I just, that's what I thought yeah. it was, right? But it was the craziest thing because as the day went on, I kept hearing this voice in my head said, go see that movie. Go see that movie. No idea why. So at the last minute, I called my friend. I said, do you still have an extra ticket for that film? And he said, yeah. So when I when I watch the film and then it, the story starts unfolding that it's these three teenagers, um, different ages, had been arrested for this crime. I mean, I just started watching it feeling kind of how I felt often growing up in West Virginia in a very fundamentalist church, community, family. And my heart just went out to Damien. I just saw how difficult his situation was. There's just no winning with that, all of that around you. And you're a different person and you have different interests that are not like everyone else's around you. So I I grew up like that and I just felt for him and also had the instinct that something horribly had gone wrong in that case, you know, without having any other knowledge of what happened down there. You had all of these New Yorkers sitting in that theater and it was late, and Bruce uh, Sinofsky and Joe Berlinger did a Q&A. And I started hearing the questions, and everyone around me was feeling the same way I was. Like, these guys were railroaded. I mean, I do think that that's why so many people did become involved. It was one of the first cases that a documentary came out, and then this huge movement started. So backing up, who was Lori at this point? Yes, she was a moviegoer. She was also a vibrant young woman in a big city with a job that she loved. She worked as a landscape architect, mostly working for high-end clients with unlimited budgets. Literally, I was its like a kid in a candy store. I was designing estates for literally the 1%. And you know, I could just go to Sotheby's and pick out anything I wanted. Bouncing from project to project and place to place, she was traveling a lot. She loved her job. She loved her life. Nothing was holding her back or keeping her down. So my life was very, I had sovereignty over everything I did. I felt like I was just kind of, you know, doing everything I'd ever wanted to do as a kid. Um, So thanks, Paradise (laughs) Lost. Right? Yeah. No. (laughs) If I can interject as a friend, I'd like to point out something special about Lori. Her intuition is strong as hell. For as long as I've known her, she's trusted her gut to an admirable level. It's the engine to her car, but it's also her driver, directing her on where to go next. The way she looks at the world is just so fascinating. So when she left this theater with such a strong feeling to do something to help these three incarcerated people, she followed it. She described the feeling as being on autopilot, actually. And bada bing, bada boom, she's writing letters to a death row inmate. I do remember what I wrote, and I do remember why I wanted to. I just 
felt a kinship with him. It wasn't as if I saw him as an 18-year-old on screen and fell in love with him. And so that first letter was about basically, what can I do to help you? So what did he say back? I mean, if your first question was, what can I do? What was his answer? He didn't respond to it. (laughs) He wrote back this extremely polite, very well written. You know, his handwriting is so beautiful. But the letter was just, it felt beyond his years in a way, like just the way that he worded things. And he was very grateful to have heard from me. And as soon as I got his letter, I just felt even more inclined to look more into it. And of course, I wrote him back. And that was the beginning. We were off and running and couldn't stop. Like, I got his first letter and then he got, and then we just started eventually just writing every day, like not even answering letters. It was just like writing, like, blah, everything from our lives, you know, just getting to know each other on a level I'd never known another person before because we just communicated so much. And then eventually he started calling me and so we would talk every day and we would write every day. And it just went on for years. Yeah. It was like you were sending journal entries to each other. Exactly. That's exactly what it was like. And at the same time, asking questions and hoping that somewhere in the passing of these letters across the country, you'd get an answer. But sometimes it was crazy. I would write, a, I once wrote a letter about black widow spiders in my childhood and sent it to him. And then I got a letter from him the next day about black widow spiders in his childhood. It wasn't like I was looking for a romantic relationship because I just didn't understand how to ever go about that or what. It just didn't even occur to me. But as we started to get to know each other and I got to know his mind, I realized I've never met anyone like this in my life. This person is so special and so interesting to me. And we just kept exploring and exploring. And I'm just realizing that I'm falling in love with this person. I'm so amazed at him. I didn't move down there until 1998. And by that time, I mean, I still wasn't involved in the case in any way. Mm -hmm. What did you tell your friends and family about moving down to Arkansas? (laughs) Well, just that. I'm moving down to Arkansas. Yeah, I have this life of everything I ever (laughs) wanted. And I'm leaving to move to Arkansas for no real reason. Yeah. Once down there, Lori was allowed to visit Damien once a week. Between that and the letters and phone calls, they started building their own world together, forging connections any way they could access. And then, on December 3rd, 1999, they got married on prison grounds. It was the first time they touched. I now pronounce your boyfriend in prison to be your husband in prison. And not just in prison, on death row, for something he didn't do. Oh, and his two friends who also didn't do it, they're in for life. Now that's a Hallmark movie of the week. You know, women who marry people in prison, I don't know, we're just predisposed to be crazy or something. Even when the people believe you and believe Damien and and are part of the people fighting for his innocence, that there would still be some kind of raised eyebrow or something. Yeah, in the beginning it was. And once again, I have to give them the benefit of the doubt because that's it's a pretty crazy thing to do to marry someone on death row, right? Right. 
Hey, girl. Hey, girl. Apostrophe is here. I'm obsessed, fam. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne. Yeah, so they connect you with a board-certified dermatologist. Here's what happened. It was a long, hard winter. Wasn't it ever. It wasn't it ever. My skin can get really dry, so I wanted to just rejuvenate it for the springtime and the summer, right? So I took this online quiz. They asked me about my skin goals, my medical history. They asked me to snap some selfies, and they were just like plain face, like, you know, it's not a glam selfie. (laughs) It's for this dermatologist to really take a look at your skin, plus your needs, plus what you're looking for, and they create this customized plan and then it comes to you in the mail. It's ama- with very clear instructions, I might add. And let me ask you, how do you love it? I love it so much. And honestly, I really am going to talk about the instructions because skincare is very like, what do I use first? Do I do that last? <laughs> Whatever. And they say like, nope, this you use first. This only in the morning. This only at night. It's amazing. Look, I'm radiant. I'm glowing. You always have been. Apostrophe, we love you. So fam, here's the deal. We have a special deal for our audience. Save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash work when you use our code work. This code is only available to our listeners. That's right. And to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash work, click begin visit, then use our code work at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash work and use the code work to get your dermatologist crafted treatment plan for $5. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring this podcast. We also thank them for coming up with code work like work, 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 work. Angelica. I, like it wasn't in my head the whole time. <laughs> work, work. Angelica. Liza. And Peggy. Sorry. You set me up. I knocked it out of the park. Hey, girl. Hey, girl. Green Chef is here. I love Green Chef so much. We literally eat Green Chef at my house like three to four nights a week. Right. Now, I know what you're thinking, dear listener. What happened to HelloFresh? Here's the deal. (laughs) HelloFresh owns Green Chef. So now Green Chef has a much wider array of meal plans to choose from. There's something for everyone. And you know how HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit? Yeah. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. So that's the deal, right? We're always trying to like take care of ourselves. If you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, they make it so easy. I am many of those things, especially the gluten-free. And yes. they make it so easy to like find great meals. It's all packed with like proteins and veggies. They also have these like great sauces, like this like dill thyme sauce that we put you on our chicken. You know I love a dill sauce. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and you know, like I want to cook and feel good about myself, but I don't have a ton of time in the world. So these are fast. They're easy. It's incredibly sustainable and it's the most sustainable meal kit. It offsets 100% of plastic in every box and 100% of their carbon emissions and their carbon footprint. So feel good inside and out. I love that, but like, let's get to it. Like, how quick and easy is this to make? I gotta tell you, it's pretty quick. It's pretty easy. Steve makes it every night. It takes like 20 to 30 minutes. The house smells amazing. Everything is pre-measured, pre-packaged. They send it all to you. There's no waste and the food is healthy and delicious. So I'm gonna tell you a secret. I go back yeah. and forth between Green Chef and HelloFresh because oh, yeah, I can't choose. So I go back and forth all the time. So go to greenchef.com slash work130 and use code work130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. So yeah, fam, go to greenchef.com slash work130 and use code work130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. This is real. I really love and eat this all the time. Yes. Again, it's the number one meal kit for eating well. Hello. Yes, hello. <laughs> get after it. <laughs> So it's the turn of the millennium and Lori's a married woman. Onward with the future, right? Yeah, here's what they don't tell you about being the spouse of a death row inmate. 
If you want to get them free, you've got to lead that fight from the outside, which was a very scary prospect for Lori at the time. I'm not a very, I guess the word would be aggressive person, or I've always been in some ways rather anxious socially and I didn't even like to call and order food. I mean, that's how much I just didn't want to <laughs> react. I didn't want to interact with, you know, people. I didn't, I don't know. It's just always been like that. My my sisters are like that too. So, but I just realized this is, I've got to become a different person. And I didn't know what that person needed to be. I just knew I needed to be a little bit more forceful in what I wanted and how things needed to go. First, she had to find Damien a lawyer, a new lawyer, a good lawyer a lawyer with time to dedicate toward an appeal. And in order to do that, she had to raise money. And in order to raise money, she had to make connections. Now, remember, Paradise Lost activated so many people, including Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, Henry Rollins from Black Flag, Peter Jackson, the Lord of the Rings trilogy director, and his spouse and screenwriter, Fran Walsh. And there was that call from Johnny Depp, of course, which was great, but let's get real. Natalie Maines was also calling, and everything comes to a screeching halt when Natalie Maines has something to say. We had a PayPal, like, we had a, a, you know, a thing you could donate through WM3.org. They just started sending money, money, money. And then whatever we can do to help, Natalie Maines does the same thing, whatever I can do to help. So I just knew I, this isn't going to be a one-off thing. I'm going to lasso these people in. And so what you have to do with that is you... You do. You have to build relationships. And that takes time and it takes some effort. I wouldn't I would think twice about flying to Seattle if Ed needed something or Nicole needed something with Fran and Pete, whatever. You know, I just tr- started building relationships with them. And also Damien did. He started writing people. So they got to know us as people as, as opposed to, you know, victims or Damien or, you know, a movement. It was literally two people who were in love with each other and needed your help. And they all stuck by us and still to this day, we're friends with all of them. And here's the Patti Smith speaking at a West Memphis Three rally. I had a dream um, that a giant archangel, a giant one uh, came to me and he looked at me and said, the small things the small things. And I really didn't understand it till I was listening to Damien speak. And the small things is what every one of us can do to create one great thing, freedom. We can make phone calls, write letters, pray, give money, uh, send love, whatever we can do, each small thing connects to make a great big thing, and that big thing is to bring those boys back home. What began as cold calls from celebrity donors eventually blossomed into compilation CDs, benefit concerts, and organized networks of people who sought justice not only for Damien, Jesse, and Jason, but also anyone punished for being different. I mean, Pacey Witter shouted them out on the series finale of Dawson's Creek. Think about that. I'm sure that I could live without you. I'm just not sure that I'd want to, Audrey, so... That's it. Uh, That's it. That's my pitch. So peace out, everybody. Free the West Memphis Three. And there was Lori, holding the lasso around it all. So we finally raised enough money to hire Damien, an attorney, 
But that was crazy because we hired this attorney from the University of Chicago from their Innocence Project. And I remember we raised like, you know, $100,000. We were so excited. And we hired him. And one of the other attorneys on board said, you have to pay him a retainer. You have to just give it all to him. And we're doing what we think we're supposed to be. So we give him the whole $100,000 and he steals it. (gasps) What? Hi, I'm sorry. I have to jump in here and say something. What a dick, right? How dare he? Uh, Thank you. I just had to get that out. Wait, you know what? This is kind of a special moment. This is the first time I'm interrupting my own podcast to talk about what a dick someone was. Ah, The first of many, I'm sure. Anyway, as Lori was saying. So I had to, first of all, find another attorney in six months, which I just kept listening, listening. I was calling every attorney under the sun. And then I just kept listening. And I kept hearing this name, Dennis Reardon, Dennis Reardon, and the work he had done. He eventually came on board, but he wanted $200,000. So I had to raise $200,000 really fast. I even went to my family. My, you know, I went to anyone who would just give. But the lawyer was only half of it. Lori's team needed a solid case for an appeal. They needed new evidence of Damien, Jesse, and Jason's innocence. So she went out to try and find it. So the next, from like 2005 to about 2009, literally all I did, I quit my job and I started working full time on the case. I would wake up every morning with a list of like 20 things to do, like go through the garbage cans in West Memphis and drive up to, (laughs) so I did that kind of work. I mean, it was like, literally like being a detective and we had another she was a woman who was amazing rachel geyser and she and i would go around and pick up trash and go talk to people and this went on for you know full-on four years really intense work so tell me about all of this work behind the scenes i mean coming as a landscape architect what about that career helped you with this and what did you (laughs) have to learn i mean people go to school for this Yeah, they do. (laughs) And for me, I do feel very fortunate in that the way that I work, even when I was a landscape architect, involved a lot of research. I research everything. Even before I start a project, I will go to the library and research every, like, wherever I was working. I just love research. Oh, another thing that helped me being a landscape architect was working with contractors because it's still such a man's world in any kind of construction, right? So I would, you know, literally be on the site with all of these contractors and I just learned donuts. (laughs) Donuts is the answer. (laughs) So what I learned, and I know this sounds silly, is when you're going to go up to someone's house and ask them to interview, bring some muffins or bring something, you know, it's also a very Southern thing. But anyway, (laughs) dealing with contractors was a very instructional for me to be able to deal with attorneys and all these men Mm. who were working on the case. Because it is, it's an art form. It's like walking into a man's world. We took that entire case apart and looked at every aspect of it that we could. And the turtles was huge too. Yep, the turtles. Huge for the case. But also, I mean, literally gigantic. We're talking prehistoric dinosaur-like turtles. Remember how the state explained away the weird marks on the victims' bodies? They said it just had to have been the work of occultists. That was the whole basis for convicting these three guys, right? Well, in the documentary West of Memphis, which captured a lot of this investigative process Lori was in the thick of, you'll see another route taken to explain these markings. It wasn't Satan. It was turtle bites. 
And of course, we have a woman to thank for pointing this out. So we brought on a few, like about six forensic pathologists all at once. It was a woman, Dr. Janice Oppenhoven in San Francisco, who first came out with the theory that it was animal predation. So we got that report and everyone literally just stopped in their tracks. And so then we had a meeting with Werner Spitz and I, I was in San Francisco with Damien's lawyer. We were doing a video call. He started talking about he could see plainly that a lot of the injuries were caused by snapping turtles. He could tell by the way the bite looked. He could tell the way the skin was torn. I sat there and literally felt the earth give way beneath me because I know what it's like down there. And that, that time of year in May, snapping turtles are everywhere. They're coming out to get warm. They're, you know, it's just they're everywhere and they're huge especially in those bayous. So Fran had me find a turtle farm up in northern Arkansas. I didn't even know things like this existed, but I guess they do all over the world for whatever reason. So we went up there and literally this guy had all of these homemade ponds, huge, so many turtles everywhere. And he had huge snapping turtles. And so as a part of the film, he agreed to let one of these snapping turtles bite his arm so that we could see what kind of a injury would be made, what the wound would look like. If you watch West of Memphis, you will see that's a point in the film that everyone just makes a noise in the auditorium because they see it as we did. Red flags should go up when a body is pulled from water, especially in the month of May. At that latitude, those reptiles are in high gear. They're feeding at their highest level, their most voracious appetites. This is, this is the bite mark I'm looking for. You can already start to see the outline of the jaw. Yeah, because then you have the side, and that guy, He's, he's just like, I remember hearing him say like, no, 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 leave it. Because someone is trying to get the snapping turtle off his arm. And the guy is like, no, 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 no. Because he really wanted to see like yeah. one little nip wouldn't prove it. You have to see when they really sink their, their very strong teeth. In. And then you have it side by side. And you're so right. You can't help but say, oh, my God. I mean, it's right there. Yeah. In front of you. Yeah. And it really was the turning point in the case. And by the way, every one of those forensic pathologists came back with the same report, animal predation. So around 2009, like nothing was happening in the case. We went for about 18 months or longer, where I call it the doldrums. We were literally on a ship in the middle of no, where no wind. It was so awful. Like our relationship was deteriorating. Nothing was happening in the case. There were no breakthroughs. I just felt like we were slowly kind of just fading away. And then I get this email from Fran. She's like, are you okay? And usually I would say, yeah, we're fine. And this time I didn't. I said, no, you know, we're not okay. By this point, Lori was nearly a decade into this fight and her team needed some fresh minds on the case. They brought on a new investigator, publicist, and the real secret sauce, attorney Steve Braga. In 2010, the Supreme Court of Arkansas ruled that enough evidence had been accumulated by Lori and her team for a hearing. Just when they're in the home stretch of talks with the prosecution, something big happens. 
Hey, girl. Hey, girl. Guess what? Modern Fertility is here. Hey, Modern Fertility. And as you know, look, I'm not a mother, but if you want to be a mother, I think yeah. it's important that you have the best services out there. And of course. Knowledge is power. The more you know, the better you know. You make better decisions. So it's all about your body, your health, your future. There aren't many decisions bigger than having a kid. Okay, yeah. I made one decision. <laughs> other people are making other ones. And for many women, fertility is a major question mark. Of course. And the thing about Modern Fertility, fam, it's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. You mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Yeah, you get insight into your hormone levels, your ovarian reserve, which... Yeah. Are you surprised that I know what it is? It's how many <laughs> eggs you have compared to other women your age and other important fertility factors. So you get real results and don't Google anything. Like no. really send this in and get your tailored results. And get this. Traditional testing with your doctor can cost over a thousand bucks, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at $159, fam. I'm not good at math, but that's a fraction of the price. <laughs> so fam, right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash work. Yeah, so that means your test will cost $139 instead of the hundreds or thousands it would cost at a doctor's office. So get 20 bucks off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash work. One more time, because I think it's very important. Modernfertility.com slash work. Work, work. Angelica, I'm going to do that. We can't do that every episode. We can't, right? We're going to get canceled in like 10 different ways. A hearing is on the horizon for the West Memphis Three, and Lori gets a phone call from Damien's lawyer. He's got news. And I get this call from Steve Braga on a Friday night, right after I'd been to see Damien. I get a call. He asked me, what time does Damien call you in the mornings? And I said, usually around eight, something like that. He said, I have something I need you to tell him tomorrow. He called with a way out. It's called an Alford plea, and it's a huge contradiction. The exact definition changes all the time, but at its core, it's a guilty plea. But one where the accused doesn't actually admit to a crime and thereby gets to maintain their innocence. And in this case, if all three men, Damien, Jesse, and Jason, all accepted this deal, they could walk free. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you'd think I wouldn't get emotional, but I think it's just being with you oh. that does it. <laughs> but anyway, he said... You know, we've worked up, and he explained the Alfred plea to me, which you hear, and Damien and I had talked so many times over the years, he would not take a plea. He would not take a plea. But this was different. You know, this is a different kind of plea where you don't, you know, he wasn't having to legally say he was guilty. He could still proclaim his innocence, even though in the eyes of the law, he would be still considered guilty. So needless to say, I mean, I didn't sleep, and I it was one of the best, worst nights. And then when I asked Damien, there was just absolutely no hesitation. He was he was ready. He, he was just like, yes, just I went out of here. And then back then, the attorney general said the deal was for all three men, Jason and Jesse. And Damien had to take the plea or the deal was off the table. Jesse agreed to it, but Jason didn't. And so that was a whole nightmare of about a week of trying to talk to Jason into it. We got all these people involved, and finally he did say yes. But anyway, they ended up taking the deal, and they, they all walked out in 2011 and had probation for 10 years. And that ended in August, thankfully. It's not perfect. It's not perfect by any means, but 
at least it brings closure to some areas and some aspects. You know, we can still uh, bring up new evidence. We can still continue the investigations we've been doing. Um, we can still try to clear our names. The only difference is now we can do it from the outside instead of having to sit in prison and do it. But the Alfred plea since then has been used so many times. It just like there was an explosion of Alfred pleas after that, which is just deplorable, I think. I mean, it, in some ways, yeah, it was great because Damien got out of prison. That's why it's such a quandary, because it is it is a mechanism to get an innocent person out of prison. But then it's so hard after that to regenerate people coming to, you know, to there's so many people in prison who need to get out. And so you see what I'm saying? Yeah, because it's not holding anyone accountable. Right. And it's not changing any of the systemic issues in place that get people in prison in the first place. It is so easy to be wrongfully incarcerated and it's nearly impossible to undo that. It is. I was so scared. I remember sitting in the van with Damien after we left the courthouse and just looking down and seeing my knee touching his. It's like you literally dreamed about it, envisioned it, visualized it so many times, and then it's actually happening. But what came upon me at that moment was the huge responsibility that I had to take care of this person who I didn't even know at that point the, you know, just the toll the torture of being in solitary and just being in prison had taken on him and no one around him did. That's the thing because this is something I think is so important to everyone that trauma, you can't see it. And if someone is suffering from that, sometimes they don't act out and sometimes you can't see it. Sometimes they'll just get quiet. But what was happening with Damien was these huge adrenaline rushes, hundreds of them every day. When you're in your car, you're driving and you hit ice and your car like starts spinning, that kind of an adrenaline rush, he would get if someone stepped in front of him on the sidewalk. There were so many times when I would walk into a room and Damien's fist goes back. So this, I'm thinking, still not understanding how hard it was for him to just be in the world. We finally met a neurologist years later who explained it to us. And she said, you've got to remember, when Damien was in prison, he, was, he went in very young. His brain was still forming. So when you're in, in prison like that or on death row where it's very dangerous, your brain is pretty much carving out two grooves, fight or flight. That's what your brain is doing. It's like literally like carving these two because that's the most important thing. And then eventually after all this touring and book signing and all the stuff that he was doing, he just literally had a nervous breakdown and just wouldn't get out of bed for like three weeks. And then it happened again a year later. And then eventually we just disintegrated into suicidal, horribly damaged people. (laughs) I mean, by that time, it was about 2016. I just can't imagine, Lori, that journey of fighting for something for so long and having blinders on and putting every ounce of everything you have and then getting it (laughs) and then 
there's now a new battle mm-hmm. without the recovery process right from prison to manhattan i see it so vividly in West of Memphis, when you're all walking out of the courthouse and Eddie Vedder says that beautiful thing about all those years ago, these people were out for blood and now they're cheering and crying and it's so mm. beautiful and mm-hmm. Damien's smiling and you are you can't take your eyes off him and you're smiling and everyone's waving. And it's a beautiful but heartbreaking, happy, sad moment. And then everyone kind of thinks you just lived happily ever after. And, well, you know, we'll fight to hold the state accountable. But, oh, wow, it's all puppies and rainbows. And it wasn't. <laughs> It wasn't. I mean, don't get me wrong. We were so grateful to have him out. And it's also something that I want to tell everybody. It's like, if you are in that situation, you get ashamed. You feel like you should be able to handle it. You feel like you should be able to do this. And so you have this shame around it that you don't want anyone to know that you're, you know, like crazed wild animals, like not literally, but like tearing at each other. Just the nightmare that complex PTSD is and trying to navigate it in a household. All I can say is just really get help. Truly just get help because we eventually did. It took a long time, but I understand it. A lot of exonerees, and I'm going to just throw in, you know, anyone who's suffered severe trauma, you'd think no one can help you because they don't know what you've been through. And that's what I hear a lot from exonerees. I heard it from Damien. I heard it from Jason, but that's not the point. Getting help will give you tools to help you navigate the world in a different way. And that's what happened with us. And I mean, I'm so happy to say that we're both healed and we're thriving and so much better than we were. But it's so hard. Yeah. It's really, really hard. What did you learn about yourself? I mean, pre-Paradise Lost Lori, is she here? I think little glimpses are coming back because what I have realized over the years is doing that work made me really hard. Mm. I mean, it's not just dealing with the lawyers and, you know, being fearful that this person you love could be killed in prison or be terribly hurt or, you know, how long is it going to take for him to get out and all of that. It's so many things, dealing with all these people, dealing with prison, being concerned about whether you're going to be able to raise enough money, so many things. So... I feel like I got really hard Mm. as a person and that carried over after Damien got out. And so I wasn't as compassionate as I wish I could have been because I felt like I was also free falling. And so I'm thinking, I want to take care of you, but who's going to take care of me? (laughs) You know, it's like that, that kind of thing. And that, that's been the best thing in the world is to find, go back and find some of that softness and also to realize, you know, I feel like in some ways, you know, if I could just apologize to everybody else for like short with or, you know, whatever, but that's how I feel about it. I just feel like, you know, I went through all those years being, as Johnny called me, a panzer tank. And I did turn into something like that where I would just mow over people if they got in my way, if I needed to get something done. And it wasn't the kindest Hmm. person back then, but I'm finding that. I guess my armor is dropping off. (laughs) It's fun to be a little soft again. And also just, I like being back behind the scenes again. Mm. I just enjoy (laughs) not being in any kind of spotlight. It just blows my mind at how kind people can be. You see this side of humanity that is so cruel and can do 
horrendous things to each other. I'm, you know, the murderers, the unkind wardens, the the lawyers who don't do their job or whatever. And just the the state of, you know, the justice system and the prison system. There's so much anger and hostility and cruelty. And then on the other side of it, you could just got these people who just from all over the world who stepped up, you know, friends of ours. So I guess I just want to say if you can do anything to help someone who's in a situation like this and you feel that you want to, just know that whatever you do, it's going to be huge. And when it comes to wrongful conviction cases and holding the powers that be accountable, there's plenty you can do, according to Lori. Write letters to keep the pressure on state officials, district attorneys, and attorneys general. Donate to litigation and bail funds. Encourage journalists to cover more of this stuff. Show up. And remember, as she puts it, the media is key. Damien, Jason, and Jesse may be free, but they're still not exonerated. Lori and her team are still on the case to get DNA evidence from the scene tested. And in fact, it's possible. A Crittenden County Circuit Court judge has set a hearing for June 23rd, 2022, to discuss a petition Damien filed earlier this year. The shoelaces that were tied around Stephen, Michael, and Christopher can now be tested using a method that wasn't available at the time of the original investigation. Any way you can vocally support the West Memphis Three, either in person or from home, leading up to this day in court will be huge and a major step toward getting justice for six. For updates and information, follow Damien on Twitter at Damien Eccles and check out West Memphis 3, that's the number 3.org. Let the Women Do the Work is a production from the Obsessed Network, and it's produced by Becca DiGregorio, Natalie Grillo, Patrick Hines, and me, Jillian Pensavalli. Our editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Find me on Twitter at Jillian with a G. And remember, just let the women do the work. I love you. And anything you need from me, text me always, like not just petitions, like anything you need, I'll use my voice. I'll get blocked by every governor in the country. We've been just watching. I love on the West Memphis Police Department's website. It's all True Crime Obsessed listeners. They they had they had some it. photo where it's like, we're hiring. And it's like, cool, are you going to hire someone to answer the FOIA request? I mean, all of their comments, <laughs> they had to close the comments. I mean, the TCO people are just like infiltrating. So we're going to get it done, Lori, I promise you. I mean it. I know. We're going to get I some know. shit done. I know you are. <laughs>